Wait, wait, what? Well, can they just give us another day? Or at least until the end of the day, Jim? No, 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 I, I, I totally understand why they feel that way, but we also need them to understand that we are fully committed to their success as well. Mom, can you please hold uh -huh. my phone? We are going to be late, and I'm in charge. Well, hold on just a second, Jim. Sweetheart, I can't find out on the phone that's your dad! Dad! Sorry about that, Jim. What? Call my phone! Mm-hmm. Okay! Oh. Uh, excuse me. Honey, can you please be quiet? I'm about to lose the Baxters here. Go ahead, Jim. Okay. Well, can you just tell them that I'm on my way right now? Yeah, yeah, I, I am leaving right this minute. Okay, and Jen, don't let them leave, okay? Bye. What's up, hon? You okay? No, no, I'm, I'm not okay. Honey, I'm about to lose our biggest client. And if I can't save this account, it's not going to be good. You mean? Yeah. Okay. Okay. But you do realize how much this means to Amy. Steven, seriously? You're trying to make me feel guilty right now? I'm sorry. I just, I really need your help right now, okay? Okay, I, I understand what's going on here. But you promised her, Janet. She's been working on it for months. With you being absent and the other mothers being there, this is going to break her. Ugh! Why does this have to be happening right now? Okay. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and I'm going to take care of this. And then I'm going to turn right around and come back to you guys. I've got an hour and 15 minutes or so. I can totally do this. I can make it. Hey, are you ready to go? What's going on? Sweetie, I... Baby, I'm really sorry, but um, your mom has to go to work. No, I, I know. But, but this time it's a, it's a really important emergency, and I've got to go. Honey, I want you to listen to me, okay? You have been working so hard on this. I am so, so very proud of you. You are making a real difference in people's lives, and that is so much more than most people can say. Are you serious right now? Are you really not coming? Your mom is going to run to work, and then she's going to turn around and head straight to us as fast as she can, while being safe. Great. I I'm going to hurry, and you are going to be great. I love you so much, sweetheart. Go, go, go. We're going to be fine, honey. Don't take no for an answer. You've got this. Okay. Amy? Are we okay? Yeah, we're okay. Thank you. I love you both. Have fun, and I'll be back soon, okay? Love you. Bye. Why?
Clap, yes. There's tension in the room. That's a classic dilemma faced by, faced by a lot of working parents. And uh, I want to take a vote, if we can. Let's bring the lights up a little bit in the house. If you were standing in the shoes of the mother in this scene, what would you do? Okay, hear the details as much as you have. You have a 12-year-old daughter who has been planning a benefit concert, and she's going to be singing in it. You can go there, but you also have clients who are having a time-sensitive emergency, and if you're not uh, able to go, you very well will lose the account. Okay, let's do a quick hand raise on this. And don't give me this it depends thing, okay? All right? All right. Um, how many of you would go to the concert? Okay, good. And how many of you would go to the client? Oh, it's about 50-50. Hey, one of you who said, I'm going to the concert, give us your reason why, out loud. Family matters. Family matters. Yes. More than money? Yep. Okay, somebody who raised your hand, why do you disagree with that? What's that? You've got to take care of the family. If there's no money, there's no, you know, there's no house for the family. Any other thoughts? Why'd you vote the way you did? A longer term investment in the kid. Longer term investment in the kid. By going to the concert? When it knows the impact that that makes. Yeah, you made a promise. All right, this is a hard decision to make. And work inevitably involves these trade-offs that we have to make from time to time. We want to honor God, and we want to have a career that's meaningful and uh, also profitable, but we get hung on the horns of these dilemmas. You know, do we go to the concert or do we go to the client? Or should I have ambition at my job or should I be more heavenly minded? Should I pick a career that is just full of meaning and satisfaction or should I uh, work in more of um, just for a paycheck and then find my meaning outside of work? Should I be a missionary in order to serve God or should I just pick an occupation that's pretty boring and just try to be a good person like this guy? Remember Milton? <laughs> As we've been saying in this series, followers of God are trapped in between sometimes. There's this eternal heavenly, lasting thing that's important. But there's also the material, the things that scream in our face throughout the week, and we have to decide. On one side of the continuum, work was created by God, and God works himself. And we know that God loved to do work, and uh, you know when his work was completed, he says, oh, that was good. That felt really good. Jesus worked too. Anyone know what Jesus did for the you know, first 30 years of his life before he became a preacher? He was a carpenter, yeah. Do you think Jesus was good with wood? you think he was a good woodworker? Uh, maybe furniture was like a status symbol back then, like it is in our day, and you can just imagine the conversations in first century Jer Jerusalem. I love your new coffee table. Where'd you get it? Oh, son of God. Son of God made it. You can, you can, you can sort of imagine that Jesus was good at doing carpentry. But in John chapter 5, verse 17, it says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So God is working, Jesus says, and I'm working too. And as image bearers of God, you know, we're created in his image, God made us 
to find deep satisfaction in our work. And so that story begins with the creation account in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And originally our job description contained some really cool tasks, like there in verse 19. He brought them, the animals and the birds, to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Wow, what a cool gig. Hey, Lord, you see that hooved animal over there with the long nose and the black and white stripes? I want to call him Nick, you know, or, or Sebastian. I knew a Sebastian back in college. No, 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 I got it. Let's call him Zebra. What a cool job that God gave humans in the beginning. And that was his intention, that we d- derive some satisfaction from it. But then Genesis chapter 3 says that sin entered the world, and it made work a whole lot more complicated. In verse 17 of chapter 3, God pronounces the curse. The very ground is cursed because of you. Getting food from the ground will be as painful as having babies is for your wife, and you'll be working in pain all your life long. The ground will sprout thorns and weeds, and you'll get your food the hard way, planting and tilling, planting and, tilling and harvesting, sweating in the fields from dusk, from dawn till dusk, until you return to the ground yourself, dead and buried. (laughs) Okay, so to just kind of summarize what that says is you're going to want satisfaction from your work, but what it's going to feel like a lot of times is toil and frustration and death. So tomorrow's Monday, hate to break it to you, (laughs) and you're going to feel like at some point tomorrow, my job is killing me, and biblically speaking, you'll be right. It's right there in Genesis 3. (laughs) See, on the other side of the continuum, work can be frustrating, Or at least it doesn't satisfy all the desires that we had for it. So today, I'd like to talk to you about uh, what's eternal regarding work. And I want to talk to all of you who have a job. I want to talk to all of you who are looking for a job or someday may have a job. If you're here tonight and you're retired, I think I speak on behalf of all of us when I say that's not fair. You know, we we don't like you for that and your Caribbean cruises and your golf carts and all that. But I I want to talk to you about three things that are eternal in your daily work, no matter where you work. And let's find how we can make them meaningful and motivating. Before I do that, I'd like to retell a story to you that was first written by J.R.R. Tolkien. Don't worry, I'm not going to retell The Lord of the Rings. That'll take forever. Um... But instead, you know, Tolkien, who was a devout Christian himself, he was trying to write The Lord of the Rings. And he reached a point of writer's block where he just couldn't go any further. He had been working on this trilogy for decades uh, to create this complex fantasy world with all these creatures and languages and histories. And he had it all in his mind and somewhat on paper. But at some point, his creativity just ground to a halt. And that was tough because this was his life's work. It was his opus. It was supposed to be amazing, but Tolkien was a perfectionist, and so he just got stuck, and he felt like his life was going to be a failure because he'd never end up writing these books. So Tolkien took a break from writing, and he decided he wasn't going to write about Bilbo or Frodo for a while. Instead, he wrote a brief 20-page short story called Leaf by Neagle. And I'm going to retell that to you. And this is dedicated to all of you who want more out of your work. Once upon a time, in a land far away, there was a little painter named Neagle. And I realize that's a silly name, but if you look it up in the dictionary, Neagle means to fiddle around. 
to mess around with unimportant details. And Nigel lived alone for much of his life, and he wasn't much of a painter. He had artistic skill, but he never seemed to get anything done. And that was bad because the clock was ticking down on Nigel. He was scheduled to make a long journey, and he didn't want to go on this trip, but there was no way to get out of it. And so he just figured he needs to finish one last painting before he goes on this voyage. In his mind, he has imagined what this painting is. It begins with a leaf, a beautiful, lifelike, gorgeous leaf. And connected to the leaf is a tree. And behind the tree, opening up into the expanse, there are forests marching across the land. And in the background, there are great white snow-capped mountains. This portrait is so compelling to Nigel that he abandons all of his other work to do it. And he buys a huge canvas and he sets it up on an entire wall in his studio. And he even gets his ladder out so that he can reach the corners of the canvas. And he said to himself, at any rate, I shall get this one picture done, my real picture, before I have to go on that wretched journey. Well, Nigel labored in his little shop day and night, but he never seemed to make much progress on this painting. He'd put in a touch here and rub out a patch over there, but never seemed to get very far. Two reasons for that. The first reason was that Nigel was a perfectionist. And he was one of those painters that paints leaves better than trees. And he would spend an eternity on one leaf trying to get the texture and the hue and the sunlight hitting it and the dew drops on it. And he would spend so much time on that leaf that he never seemed to go much further. And the other problem with Nigel was that he was kind. And his painting was forever being interrupted by his neighbors in that village who would come to him with pleas of assistance. And he'd offer little acts of service here and he'd go on errands for them there. Nigel didn't mind at all, but he knew it was interrupting his work. Well, one night there was a knock on his door from his next door neighbor, a man named Parrish, who cared very little for painting and was honestly the primary culprit in interrupting Nigel's work all the time. And Parrish said, Nigel, it's a, it's a cold and wet night tonight, and my wife has caught a terrible cold. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to go into the town and fetch the doctor. Nigel said, of course, I'll put my paints away. And he went and fetched the doctor. A couple days later, Nigel came down with a cold himself from being out in the wet, cold air that night. And he started to sniffle and ache, and so much so it became hard for him to hold his brush until finally there was another knock on his door. And this time it was the driver who had come to take him away on his long journey. And when Nigel realized who it was, he cried out, Oh no, please don't take me. I haven't finished my painting. Well, after Nigel's death, a nice family bought his home and they found in it this large white canvas with a single leaf painted on it. And so they donated it to the town museum and they put the canvas in the corner and they stenciled in a little title for it. It said, Leaf by Nigel. And people came to visit it. Well, that's not the end of Nigel's tale. He makes the journey after death and he rides on a train towards the mountains and his heavenly afterlife. And while making the trip, 
he hears two voices on the train. The first voice is a rather stern sounding voice and that, that voice's name is Justice. And Justice says, Neagle, you wasted your life. You spent it on trivialities and accomplished nothing. And there was another voice on the train named Mercy and Mercy reproved Justice and said, oh no, that's not right. Neagle gave himself in service to others and he knew what he was doing. Well, the locomotive eventually stops at the outskirts of the heavenly country, and Neagle disembarks alone to meet his fate. And as he hikes towards the mountains, something catches his eye off in the distance. There's a tree in the meadow. And Neagle runs to the tree, and he sees indeed it is a tree. In fact, it is his tree. There is that leaf that he painted and beyond that, there are branches that are growing and swaying in the wind, just like he pictured in his mind, but could never get it onto the canvas. And he looks with bewilderment at this beautiful tree, and he raises his arms to the sky, and he shouts, this is my tree, and it's a gift. Now, here's what I know about you and me. All of us dream of doing something significant with our hands, that we would accomplish something amazing with our vocation. God made us in his image. God's working. And so in the garden, God said to humans, he said to us, go have fun with this. Be creative. Work is supposed to be joy. But Genesis 3 says work's hard. Sometimes it's toil. Sometimes there are thorns and weeds. So much of work just feels out of our control sometimes. And there are moments in your work when you do produce a leaf and it's beautiful and you feel good about it. But a lot of the time, you end up earning a living and paying bills and enduring office politics and playing the game and making trade-offs and failing sometimes and being worried about other people's expectations. I want you to think about your own career for just a moment. Think about some of the leaves that you've painted that you're really proud of. And I also want you to think about what feels unfinished about your career. What's frustrating about your job? What even hurts your heart about it? The Apostle Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Of course, he's talking about doing God's work, but we're going to see in a minute that doing God's work is very much connected to doing our work Monday through Friday. He says, don't get discouraged. You're not laboring in vain because there's something eternal going on in your work. And we learned in last week's message that there is eternal, something eternal that's coming. Revelation says, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And oddly, mysteriously, what we do with our moments here are connected to what we will experience there someday. So Revelation is saying God is real and heaven is real. And to you and to me and to Nego, the tree is real. That somehow the work that we are doing this week is building something of eternal value. So I don't really know what it is your tree is going to look like. But I would like to talk to you about three ways that your work is eternal. Just as 
uh, you think about this upcoming week, three ways you are building something eternal in your Monday through Friday job, your 40-hour work week. Or if you're a pastor who's here, your four-hour work week on Sunday. But I'm talking about what you're building long-term here. Number one, Eric's not here tonight, so I had to dig him. Um, When we have the right audience, we do something eternal. I'm about to read from Ephesians chapter 6 about slavery. And you need to know that slavery in the New Testament is very different than the way we think about it today. It usually wasn't about race. It usually didn't last for a lifetime. It was often based on the economics of indentured servitude, where somebody owed a debt. That didn't make it okay, and the Bible doesn't condone it. In fact, Paul was one who very much championed the idea that in Christ there's no slave or free. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the Romans persecuted the church in the early days is because we were upsetting the economic order. But listen to what he says about slavery, but more precisely about work. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whatever, whether they are slave or free. So here's the question Paul's asking you about your job. Who are you doing it for? Who's your real boss? Who's your audience? Are you working to impress your paymaster or at least not to endure their wrath? If so, you might be tempted to kiss up or to play politics or to try to work hard to dazzle people while they're watching you. But Paul says, as Christians, we work a little bit differently. You look at the words that he used in that passage. He says, we show respect. We have sincerity of heart. We work wholeheartedly. Verse 7 says, serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving God. Now, some of you may be saying, that sounds great, Paul, but you don't understand. My job sucks. I have the boss from hell. And that very well could be true, but you always have to tell yourself your job could be worse. I mean, you could have a job like this, uh, (laughs) or you might have ended up doing this for a living. Oh, that's a bad one, isn't it? Uh, But if if you change your mindset a little bit, you can find yourself uh, feeling like you're doing the very work of God, like the uh, brisket cutter at Rudy's. I mean, that guy is doing God's work. Greatest is reward in heaven. So Paul says, wake up every morning and put your hard hat on and pick up your lunch pail and enter into it with a different mindset and say a prayer. Lord, whatever happens today, I'm working for you. You're the one who I want to serve. Did you see what it says in verse eight? It says, the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. He's saying there's something eternal going on. Your job is actually building something for the future. And he echoes this in Colossians 3. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it's the Lord Christ you are serving. Okay, he's talking there not about an inheritance, he's talking about the inheritance. Your work here, the leaf you produce that has beauty at times and frustration at other times. But what you produce now is connected to your tree there. Can't you see how freeing it is if you work for God and not for people? If you're working for Jesus, you're not going to overwork or you're not going to underwork. If it's not about 
uh, scoring points with a boss or getting recognition or making money, uh, if that's not necessarily your consideration, if your consideration is, I want to give God my best today, think about how freeing that can be. So tomorrow when you start to get anxious or angry or apathetic or any other A word, uh, I want you to just look at your boss and I want you to think to yourself, I don't work for Dell. I don't work for Samsung or AISD or Frost Bank or Torchy's Tacos or Stay at Home Parent Incorporated. And the reward that I'm working for is much greater than anything that they could offer. I'm working for God. That's one thing that's eternal. A second thing that's eternal tomorrow morning, uh, Monday morning, is that when you are ambassadors, you make it eternal. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 20. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. God puts you in your job for particular reasons that you may or may not, not know about. I mean, maybe he puts you there to provide and bless you financially. Maybe he puts you there to test your character and to grow your faith. One thing is for sure, God puts you there in that office or in that workplace for those people. He put them to be in your life. And Paul says here, you don't regard people from a worldly perspective anymore. Don't just think about them as coworkers or customers or vendors or employees. In fact, he says, think about what they would be if they were a new creation. Just consider some of the people that you work around. And I'm sure they've got wonderful things about them and they've got their faults. But Paul says, think about them with a different mindset of who they would be if they really found God. The joy that would be in their life, the the freedom that they would have, the way that they would contribute to the lives of others. Paul says you have to have the right mindset. He also says you have to have the right method. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, verse 20. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God's chosen the most effective, foolproof, ingenious, perfect plan to reach the city of Austin with his message of love. And it's not that he would cause some earthquake to happen that causes everyone to think about him. It's not a social media campaign that he would do. It's, he doesn't choose to use church buildings or even a South Campus preacher with a bald, beautiful head like Eric. <laughs> God's plan is you. It says you are an ambassador. You are sent from heaven into the lives of those people. So what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to put a big King James Bible on your desk or wear a Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt on casual Friday? Those type of things aren't necessarily effective. Jesus says, just be salt and light. Be seasoning by doing good works for people. What you're doing is you're looking for an opportunity to meet a spiritual or emotional or a physical need there in your office. A spiritual or emotional or a physical need. I heard this last week about someone who visited church for the first time, and she was asked, well, hey, well, how'd you hear about us? Why'd you show up? And she said, well, I work at a company here in town, and I screwed up at work, and I did something that w would have gotten me fired. Uh, but my boss went to his supervisor, and he took the blame for what I did. And she said, I went and talked to my boss 
about that because he ended up getting in big trouble for it. And I said, I'm used to having supervisors who take the credit for all the good stuff that I do and throw me under the bus whenever something bad happens. Why did you take the blame for me? And the guy said, well, I'm a Christian and I believe that Jesus took the blame for all the things that I did. And so I just thought I might try that for someone else. And her response was, where do you go to church? <laughs> and, and, and the rest is history. Jesus says it's that simple, just to meet a physical or emotional or a spiritual need. And so this week, I want you to start praying about two people that you work around. Maybe it's a vendor or a customer or an employee or a coworker. Think about two people and just say, God, open up a door for me to meet a need in their life and see what he does. Because people are eternal. The third thing that's eternal about your work is when you handle setbacks with faith. So you and I have a problem that we need to address immediately. We've been talking about it. It's that tomorrow's Monday, right? And why is it that Monday um, is so, seems so close to Friday, but <laughs> tomorrow morning Friday is going to seem so far away from Monday? We joke about how tough work is um, and kid around about, oh, I don't want to be here. But the truth is, work holds some of our deepest desires and longings. Uh, it exposes, work does, it exposes where our heart is, what our heart's set upon, what's really important to us. Work sometimes demonstrates what we're willing to take risks for, what we're willing to pull all-nighters for, what we're willing to sacrifice our time, our energy, sometimes our health, and our families for. Wealth ha or, or work has this way of showing what it is that we treasure, do you remember Jesus talking about treasure in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He said, instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin don't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Whenever the heart is talked about in the Bible, it's not usually referring to this be beating mass of cells, and it's not talking about the emotional seat of your personality. The heart, when it's described in the Bible, is really talking about the sum total of all the things that you deeply desire, the stuff that you obsess about, the pursuits that you align your time around, your secret hopes about what's ultimately going to make you happy in life. That's what the Bible means about your heart. And Jesus says, that's what you treasure and work, sometimes more than anything else, exposes what's really on our heart, what it is that we're chasing after. Personally, I want to treasure Jesus, but most of the time I screw that up. And do you know what I really strive for at work? It's applause. More than anything, I want people to look at something I did and say, that, that was masterful. That, how did you do that? That was incredible. Well done, Ted. And this goes back to a time when I was 16 years old, a moment in my history, when I gave a speech in front of 2,000 high school boys. And I nailed it that day. It was an incredible speech. And I dropped the mic and I walked off the stage. And for about four minutes, these 2,000 boys rose to their feet and they went crazy. And I ate it up. And I decided in my little 16-year-old brain, this is life. 
This is what I want. This is better than any reward. It's better than any money I could ever make. It's like crack, you know? I was hooked on it from, from the very get-go. I want applause. And since that time, I've only had standing ovations maybe, maybe three or four other times, unless you count the time at Lifetime Fitness where I fell off the back of the treadmill in front of an aerobics class. <laughs> and as much as I hate to admit it, this is what I live for. This is what I'll do anything for. This is why I work so hard. It's for your approval. But Jesus says, there's a slight problem with treasuring stuff that doesn't last, that which is not eternal. He says, moths appear, vermin comes in, thieves inevitably break in and steal. And what does he mean by all those metaphors? He's saying that when you treasure something that's not eternal, there are going to eventually be setbacks around it. And when you don't get what you hope for, it crushes you. Do you know what I do when, after I teach a class or I give a sermon or do a keynote speech and it doesn't go well? And I don't feel like I got the approval of the people I was working with. I go out of my car I drive away, and when it's clear no one's paying attention, I cuss. And you can ask my family and friends. I, I, I'm not the kind of guy that curses that much. But when I feel like I've screwed something up, I scream at the top of my lungs. I drop the F-bomb. I say things that would make a sailor at Fleet Week blush. <laughs> and it's all because I didn't get what my heart was set on. And I wonder what it is that you treasure at your work? Is it approval? Is it cash? Is it financial rewards? Is it respect? Is it achievement? Is it building a reputation? Is it getting along with people? Watch out for the moths, Jesus says. Beware the vermin. Take care that thieves don't break in, in steel. Because when you bank your identity, when you really strive for something that's not eternal at work, and it ends up not working out for you, you stress out, um, you start to act impulsively. Sometimes you try to manipulate or scheme your way to get what you want. If it's not eternal, but your heart is set on it, and it doesn't come around the way you wanted, it can wreck you. That is, unless you have a different ultimate hope in life. And that's why in Colossians 2, Paul says, our real treasure is hidden in Christ. And in 1 Peter 2.7, Peter says, Jesus is our preciousness. Your heart gets tested at work when things go off script. And that's where you figure out what it is that you really treasure. And when you realize that you've been let down and something didn't go as planned, that is the moment to have a wake-up call and to fall to your knees and say, God, all these things don't matter. What matters is you. Because at the end of your life, you're not going to remember whether or not you made bonus in the fourth quarter of 2017. You're not going to be thinking about promotions that you did or didn't get or applause lines that happened. You're going to be thinking about the tree, the ultimate reward. So let me close with this as the band's coming up. This is Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. I love this proverb. It says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. The first half of that makes sense because of what we were just talking about. 
when you've got your heart set on something that doesn't really matter and it goes, goes wrong, it makes your heart sick. But the second part of that uh, phrase is amazing. A longing fulfilled is a tree of life. There are only three times in the Bible it talks about a tree of life. One is in the book of Genesis where God puts an angel with a fiery sword at the Garden of Eden so we can't get back in to eat it. And then in the Revelation, the tree of life there uh, is there by the throne of God in heaven for us to enjoy for all eternity. But in between Eden and the new Jerusalem, life gets hard. There's real work to do. And so the Proverbs writer includes this about the tree of life. And what he's saying is, uh, don't get discouraged, hang in there. You were created to love life and you were created to enjoy your work. But you live in an imperfect world and sometimes your work is downright agonizing. Sometimes you have to choose between going to a concert for your kid and going to a client. Sometimes your work feels unfinished. Sometimes it feels like about all you can do is eke out a little leaf or a small branch in what you're painting. But know that what you're doing tomorrow, Monday morning, is eternal if you play to the right audience. And it's eternal if you're an ambassador for God. And it's eternal if you respond in faith to setbacks. Because you are creating now a tree of life. Your tree. And you thought all along you were just earning a living. But in reality, you were painting a masterpiece. Up on the screen is a picture of Leaf by Neagle. And uh, I'm going to pray for you all. You can just keep your eyes open and look at that painting while I pray. Father, thank you for these amazingly talented people in this room who you created to do some significant things in this world. You created them to be creative and enjoy what it is that they do Monday through Friday. But God, some of us in this room are, are struggling with it. Our work feels incomplete and not happy. And so God, I pray that you would change our mindsets so that tomorrow we're working for you. I pray that you give us something eternal to create. And we so look forward to the day when we see you face to face and you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.